Hello and welcome to this episode of our patient podcast series where we will introduce you to some of the fantastic patient groups we partner with here at VML YNRX. Today I am delighted to be joined by patient advocacy star Nick Ciro, CEO and board chair of AKU Society, whose aim is to support patients build a community and find a cure for people with alcaptonuria or black bone disease. He is also co-founder and chair of Find a Cure, a charity that is bringing the rare disease community together to drive research and develop treatments. And Nick is also the founder and chair of Orchard, a charity focusing on developing treatments for patients suffering from obsessive compulsive disorder or OCD. Thanks so much for joining us, Nick. Great. Thank you. Glad to be here. So first of all, that was the longest introduction that I've had to do before. You obviously helped find three different patient groups. So could you give me a little bit of a background as to why each of these groups started and why so many? Okay, yeah. So um, I guess for me, it started uh, 20 years ago when my first son was born and uh, we took him back from the clinic on a Sunday and we noticed that his nappies were going red black. And we were very alarmed. We called a doctor uh, who couldn't figure out really what it was, who said it was my wife eating too much red cabbage. And somehow that was (laughs) getting into the breast milk and into the baby's urine. And next day we went to see our GP who got a whole bunch of tests done. And eventually it came back with a diagnosis of an ultra rare disease called alcaptonuria, also known as AKU or black bone disease. Uh, That was really the start of the journey because um, then my uh, second son was born also with this disease. And so uh, we contacted a patient and a doctor in Liverpool who were setting up a patient group called the AKU Society. And I joined them and we set that up in 2003. And really, over the past 18 years, uh, what we've been working on is developing a treatment for this disease. Um, So it's ultra rare, affects roughly one person in half a million. Uh, It's a single gene defect leading to a problem with an enzyme called the HGD enzyme that can't break down a a molecule called homogenticic acid, which accumulates in cartilage of bone at 2000 times the normal rate and goes black in a process called ochronosis. So as life develops, as they enter uh, adulthood and all that, they start to suffer from very severe joint deterioration and heart problems, eye problems. It's a multi-systemic disease. Um, so uh, we've actually been uh, very successful, actually. I mean, it's been a really tough journey. Um, you know, we fundraising, I think, was the most difficult. Um, we've raised probably around 20 million pounds by now. Um, but that was a real struggle, uh, particularly in the early years. And uh, as a patient group, we've worked very closely with a team at Liverpool um, at the university and also at the Royal Liverpool University Hospital. Um, two professors, Professor Ranganath and Professor Jim Gallagher, who've been instrumental to the success of this. And with funding from the European Commission, uh, we did a whole bunch of clinical studies, a phase two study and a phase three study of a very promising treatment uh, called nitizinone. And that was approved, was given marketing authorization uh, following an EMA, kind of European Medicines Agency positive opinion last year. And so in October last year, nitizinone became a licensed drug for AKU. So we're very, very pleased with that. And now it's about helping our patients get access to it. Um, In parallel, uh, about eight, nine years ago, I set up another charity called Find a Cure. So whilst AKU works on one disease, Find a Cure works on many diseases. And the whole point behind Find a Cure is to help uh, what we call kitchen table groups. So, you know, parents who've just set up a group for their child who's got a rare disease, for instance, around the kitchen table and train them and provide them with mentoring and to help them grow. And that's also going very well. Um, got a team now uh, in uh, Cambridge 
and you know they are working across a variety of diseases you know working also with industry and with others to really try and build the rare disease patient sector and then the third um, organization orchard ocd i set up about four years ago and that comes from my personal experience of having had obsessive compulsive disorder on and off for 30 years, uh, sometimes very, very debilitating. And also my experience of um, treatments for OCD, which have generally not been very good. You know, So despite OCD being a very common disorder, it affects two to 3% of the population. That's around a million to a million and a half people in the UK. Um, it's completely misunderstood. It is heavily trivialized. Everyone thinks it's all about lining up your pencils and your shoes and checking the tap once or twice. Um, it is a million times worse. You know, um, it often leads to suicide, uh, relationship breakdown, um, substance and alcohol abuse, uh, just an absolute disaster. And 50 percent of cases are severe and quite a number of those uh, will end up, you know, uh, just. In, it completely unable to function. So I've been running a support group for people with OCD here in Cambridge now for about five years. And that has also shown me how devastating it can be to other people. And unfortunately, there's not much research happening. You know, very little research. Um, the pharma industry has more or less abandoned psychiatry apart from one or two companies. And very few, I think only one that I'm aware of is actually doing anything on OCD. So that's why we set up Orchard. Uh, so we work with clinicians, with uh, scientists, uh, with patients, with patient groups, with industry, with anybody, really. And uh, we launched our first um, kind of big fundraising campaign a year and a half ago, which was very successful. And this is funding a trial of a psychedelic, basically, called psilocybin, uh, which has been shown to be a very strong antidepressant. And with uh, Professor David Nutt at Imperial College, we hope to be able to show that it also works against OCD, and that is meant to start early next year. You know, and the idea is uh, through Orchard to fund as much as we can an arsenal of treatments to help with OCD. I'll give an example of the second project we're funding. Um, this is a study of a medical device called transcranial direct current stimulation, um, and we've just finished uh, a study at the University of Hertfordshire under Professor Naomi Feinberg. And they're looking now at the results and how to then do a follow on study, you know. So, um, yeah, basically it's rare diseases, it's mental health, both come from a kind of personal experience of it. And uh, that's why we've kind of set up these three organisations. That's just incredible, Nick, both really, really interesting and also so inspiring that you've managed to set up three completely different groups looking at different things to help a really wide range of people. And I think what's interesting is that obviously AKU Society and Orchard are from personal experience, but also with Find a Cure, you've kind of expanded that to share your experience and your skills from setting up AKU with other rare disease kitchen table uh, groups, as you say. And I think we've heard that a lot in rare disease that it's really difficult because a lot of those groups don't exist. So people get really stuck and feel isolated because there's no information or no community out there because so few people have it. So it's amazing that you're trying to help make sure that every rare disease community has that patient group support. And just coming from kind of a place where you experienced it yourself and had to make a group because there was nothing for you, I assume, at the time, it's, it's incredible. Thank you. So could you, so you touched on it a little bit. So 
I, I hear that a lot of what you're doing is so you're upskilling patient groups with Find a Cure, but there was a lot of um, research that you're developing both for AKU and for Orchard and trying to get those two patients. And I think that's something that a lot of patient groups maybe don't necessarily do or it's a bit further out of their reach. So could you give us an idea of how you collaborate with clinicians and pharma to get that sort of multi-stakeholder perspective to get drugs, you know, researched and also access for patients? Yeah, so um, it's not easy. I can really tell you that. I mean, drug development is tough anyway, mm. um, but it's especially tough when you're working on diseases or disorders that very few people are interested in. So you, we mm. have to kind of find creative ways of really getting things done. Um, so, I mean, for 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 AKU, uh, so initially we were put, try, what we tried to do with AKU because it was a, such a, an unknown disease, even though it was identified more than 100 years ago, or 120 now. Um, wow. What we tried to do was put all the building blocks in place to then help us do a clinical study. So we funded the development of an animal model, a mouse model at University of Liverpool that was very successful. We funded a natural history study, which allowed us to de de um, develop what's called a composite endpoints, a way of assessing the evolution of the disease over time. We funded a cell model, you know, we funded a whole bunch of things. And then when all that was ready, we then looked at the clinical studies. You know, we also um, helped set up AKU societies around Europe, in France, in Italy, uh, you know, in um, the Netherlands, also in the Middle East, in Jordan, in India, in the US, Canada, Brazil, and all that. And these groups were all working with local patients, you know, and that helped also a lot for patient recruitment into the clinical studies. Mm. Um, when we actually got the funding from the European Commission, we got six million euros uh, to do a phase wow. two and phase three trial, which is really doing it on a, on a shoestring. Um, we uh, had been working with the company Swedish Orphan Biovitrum for about a year or so, trying to get them on board. And it was really tough at the beginning because um, the drug Nitizanone, they owned the patent to that, but that patent was ending in 2017, basically. So mm. they knew that they would not be able to recover their costs, you know, because nitizanone is already used for another disease, so it was drug repurposing. So they eventually did it for philanthropic reasons. And what I've seen in industry is that's actually quite rare. You know, so we were very fortunate, you know, and they put a team on the case. Uh, they provided the drug for free uh, for the clinical studies. You know, they provided loads of advice, regulatory stuff, all that kind of stuff. And they were absolutely fantastic. But we were fortunate to find a company that really had that ethos and that was willing to collaborate, even though they knew that they wouldn't really be making any money out of that, you know. Um, mm. So and then after that, it was managing the consortium. We had a consortium of 12 organizations across Europe, you know, in France and Slovakia. Liverpool coordinating it all and um, and that was uh, that actually went really well because we used to have meetings every Thursday morning at 9 30 we would have a teleconference these were days before zoom um, and, and that worked really well you know so in the end everyone really enjoyed working on this um, but it was all that kind of building it and trying to get it to work without really having the level of funding that we'd have ultimately really required to do this fast you know mm -hmm. and um, in Orchard what we do is we look for um, we have a call for proposals every couple of years and we look for um, treatments these can be drug treatments or medical devices or psychological treatments uh, which would not get commercial backing otherwise you know mm -hmm. 
And that's what we work on. And so we try and, and work with, you know, kind of initially with academics uh, who are at the forefront of understanding OCD and trying to treat it, you know. And ultimately, we haven't got that far yet, but we'd be willing to um, collaborate, you know, with with industry, with big farmers, you know, kind of biotechs, anybody really who wants to do anything on OCD. Sure. So it sounds like to start with, it's a lot about the academic research. Uh, I guess, is is that because there are more people willing to do it or the funding's easier or they're just easier to collaborate with or they have the resources? What's the reason for that? I think it's because they are, they are more willing to do early stage uh, research. Mm. You know? So what uh, I've seen from the pharma industry is they tend to get involved uh, once a target has been identified, uh, once the things are in place, once the natural history is understood, once we know how to do a clinical trial protocol, and once it's been de-risked, that's what we saw in AKU. You know, once it's been kind of de-risked as much as possible, then the pharma company will be like, okay, you know, it, it's worth giving this a go. And uh, what I've seen in OCD, I mean, there's only one company um, that I'm aware of um, doing kind of clinical studies in OCD. That's an American company called Biohaven, you know, with a, mm. a very interesting drug and uh, doing really good work. Um, but otherwise, I'm not aware of any other pharma companies who are doing anything on OCD, you know. And so what we're trying to do is to try and build the research also, the understanding of the neurobiology, um, so that it, then we start developing new targets for molecules that could be used as treatments. Yeah, OK, that's that's really interesting. So you have to kind of have that academic and basis before mm. pharma companies will want to get involved. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. And just another thing I wanted to touch on is, is that it's great that you have sort of an international community going on there, because I think especially in rare disease, the pool, if you just focused on the UK, is so small, both for patients and I guess experts in it that by expanding that, you're just sort of pooling all your research resources to get to a common goal. And I think that kind of multiplies your power so much more. Mm, yes, no, absolutely. So rare disease research. I mean, research in general always works better when it's international, you know, mm -hmm. which is why I think so many uh, scientists and so many of us patient groups were alarmed uh, by what Brexit might mean for international collaboration. Um, mm -hmm. But um yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. On a rare disease, uh, if you just work with one centre in one country, uh, you're not going to get the numbers, but also the exchange of ideas that's needed to really make this work. So what that's what we saw. Uh, so when with Professor Ranganath, we set up the Developer Cure Consortium um, that had, you know, three clinical trial centres, one in France, one in Slovakia, one in the UK. We had the pharma company Sobi from Sweden. We had patient groups from across Europe and from Jordan. Uh, University of Siena, University of Liverpool, Slovakia, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, you know, and there was a real cross-fertilisation of ideas that helped it to be successful. That's fantastic, both internationally and I guess mm. the, the multi-stakeholder aspect of it, because you need every different group to be able to work together to bring all the skills that are needed to develop a drug. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I wondered if you could share with me as well a bit about your role or the patient role in general with regards to access to new treatments and drugs. So uh, do, you, do you mean by that once the drug has been approved, encouraging? Yeah, so so um, I mean, the whole drug development process is a very linear process. Mm -hmm. um, and I think the exception to that has been obviously the development of the vaccines, uh, which we've seen happening. You know, they've, they've tried to really shorten the process and do things in parallel and all that, which I think is amazing because 
Um, my experience, like, it's been very linear. You know, you have mm. to do your preclinical and your mouse model, and then you do your clinical. And once you've done your phase one, you do your phase two, then your phase three. And then once you've done that, you go for marketing authorization and you go for reimbursement. And that's why, you know, everything just takes forever. Um, so when um, nitizinone got approved by the European Medicines Agency in September last year, uh, then started the whole process of trying to get access in different countries. Um, so we had some hurdles, you know, in the UK, uh, first of all. Uh, NICE was uh, kind of looking at it and then um, they in the end agreed um, that you know because it was already being provided by the National AKU Centre in Liverpool it would continue to go through that and not have to be a NICE approval process but um, in France for instance uh, the Comité de Transparence initially rejected uh, reimbursing nitizinone and with the company Sobe France we had to appeal and then um, they changed their mind. They gave it what's called a weak status. So that was kind of progress and stuff. Mm. Uh, we had to go through a whole process in Wales. Uh, so for the past 10 years, uh, we've been trying to get our Welsh patients to have access to nitizinone and the Welsh government was refusing, even though it was provided completely off label for England and Scotland. And um, just uh, two weeks ago, uh, the Welsh health authorities, um, after a, going through a whole process in which we were involved as a patient group and providing testimonies and evidence and all that, um, have agreed now to reimburse. Oh, fantastic. Okay. And, um, and I, I know in other countries such as Slovakia, they're struggling to get it reimbursed and stuff. So what we do as a patient group is that... Um, you know, if the local patient group uh, wants our assistance and also if, uh, you know, kind of local affiliate of the pharma company wants our assistance, we will then help them uh, with patient testimonies, with providing advice, with providing access to experts like Professor Ranganath and Professor Jim Gallagher and all that kind of stuff to try and drive it forward, you know. But our focus um, is not just European, it's now worldwide, you know. I mean, we get uh, contacted by patients from all over the world, from India, from the Middle East, who are saying, look, I'm really suffering from AKU. There's this drug now available. How do I get it? You know, and that is really difficult, really difficult. Um, yeah. So we try and help in whatever way we can. That's great. And I know that the patient voice as, is having a lot more strength and being listened to more in the reimbursement process. So it's really important for patient groups to get involved because they do have, you know, power in that situation. Yeah. And I guess a little bit like we've heard before, it's such a shame that there are, there's almost a postcode lottery on whether you can get access to the drugs that you need or not. Uh, like you say, you could live in England and just over the border in Wales not be able to get the drug. And that kind of health inequality, is that the same with diagnosis, for example, as it is treatment? Yeah, I mean, these kind of postcode lotteries are just everywhere um so i mean a, a, a lot of our patients with aku have been on long diagnostic odysseys uh, you know mm. so we have i met a patient last week in liverpool um he was in his early 30s and it had taken him about 10 years to get a diagnosis he'd gone from mm. doctor to doctor with all his joint problems and etc and in the end he just got diagnosed by a doctor who suddenly remembered having studied AKU at medical school kind of decades earlier mm. and uh, was curious about the symptoms you know but we get others uh, who are in their 60s and they've been suffering for 40 years and only then did they get a diagnosis we've had one case where a patient went for joint surgery and uh, the surgeon opened door up saw that it was all black inside because of you know the ochronosis because of the damage caused by AKU and closed sewed it all up and all that and didn't say anything and it was only at the following surgery 
that the patient actually was identified, you know, was diagnosed with AKU. So we get all kinds of stories and it's the same for all rare diseases. But even in mental health, it's the same. You know, people with OCD generally will suffer about a decade or so before they get a diagnosis, you know, from the onset of symptoms. And that was very much my experience um, because your OCD is either not taken seriously by the, by the doctor that you go and see. I remember the first doctor I saw I said, oh, well, we all have our problems and all that, you know, off you go. Um, or they will diagnose it, diagnose it generally as depression, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really difficult one. And the postcode lottery is very prevalent. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's a really common experience of people with rare disease to have such a delayed diagnosis. And like you say, as well, in mental health, only recently have people started taking it much more seriously. And of course, it's also severely underfunded. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. The lack of funding. I mean, like what we see for mental health research, um, it's severely underfunded compared to physical health. You know, that's absolutely sure. But there is a foundation in London called MQ uh, who fund a lot of mental health research. And every few years they do a study on the state of mental health research funding. And when you look at that, the latest one, OCD is right at the bottom. You know, so at the top you have depression, schizophrenia, we're not, which are not getting much, but at least they're getting something. And mm. then it goes all the way down to eating disorders and right, right, right at the bottom of OCD to the point that, I think they calculated uh, that the funding for OCD was equivalent in one year to 89 pence per patient. You know, so that's like you can't even get an espresso for that. No. Um, so it, it's absolutely scandalous. Yeah, that's absolutely not enough, like you say, for such a horribly debilitating disease as well. Mm. So, Nick, as you've mentioned, you've achieved so much already, but we'd love to hear about what your goals are for the future. Right. So, yeah, I mean, the goals uh, for AKU now are to really cure the disease. So mm. we're looking at two potential therapies for this. One is an mRNA therapy. And we've mm. just put together a proposal for that, which we're now trying to raise funds for. And that is based on the technology that has worked so well for the vaccines, kind of mRNA technology. Um, and then the other one is gene therapy. And we've been working on a gene therapy for AKU for a number of years. And it's been really tough, you know, uh, but mm. we now have a much better idea of how to make it work. Um, so we're now again, we've got a very good plan that we've just finished and we're fundraising for that, too. And that and that is the aim within the next five to 10 years to have a cure for AKU, uh, you know, which would be absolutely fantastic. Uh, in OCD, um, it's it's much more difficult also. I mean, AKU is tough, but OCD mm. is much more difficult because it is such a heterogeneous uh, disorder. You know, it manifests itself in so many different ways. And we still don't completely understand, um, you know, what causes it. I mean, they seem to be genetic factors, uh, environmental factors, uh, all kinds of stuff to do with brain um, circuitry and um, neurotransmitters and all that. Um, so what we want to do is to work very closely uh, with scientists such as Professor Trevor Robbins at the University of Cambridge, Professor Naomi Feinberg at the University of Hertfordshire, to get a much better understanding of the neurobiology of OCD, you know, but also to really continue funding new treatments. Because for OCD, there's not going to be one size fits all treatments. We need an arsenal of treatments, you know, because what we've mm. seen, my experience is some treatments work for some patients and not for other patients. So it really is driving that forwards. Yeah, that's a very ambitious but really worthy goal for both. So, Nick, just finally, bearing in mind that we have teams from all over the world listening, what can we at VMLY and RX do 
to help you with your goals? Um, well, I think that patient groups and groups such as my, uh, such as you know the ones I'm working on, uh, really need professional expertise, you know, to guide them through the processes such as the HTA process or the research process and all that. And the second thing is we need funds, you know, so any fundraising that you can carry out will be really, really useful because that is the lifeblood of what we're trying to do. And then any kind of creative ideas to how to make it work. And particularly for OCD, I think we need creative communication ideas to try and change public awareness of it because that has a big impact on treatment and diagnosis. Absolutely. Well, listeners, there's your challenge. Uh, I know that we have a lot of creatives in the industry and obviously communications are our specialty. So hopefully Nick will keep talking to you and be able to help you. And in the meantime, good luck with all the research that's going on and you're doing a fantastic job. Excellent. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.